today I want to preach on, of course, fatherhood, Father's Day, intentional fatherhood. And uh, before I get there, I wanted to mention to you that on our church's Facebook page, I posted this week a message from Gary somebody, I forgot his last name right now, but it's a biblical response to the transing of America. The, a biblical response to the transing, the uh, transgender thing uh, in America. And so uh, if you haven't listened to that yet, I would encourage you. It's a great message, powerful message. And I would encourage you to uh, check that out. Uh, and you can look it up on Baseline Christian Fellowship's Facebook page. The link is there for that as well. But so, happy Father's Day to all the dads. I wanted to start off this morning with some, some rules, eight rules that dads can use for dating his daughter. Rule number one, get a job. No job, no dating. Good advice. Rule number two, understand, I don't like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> number three, I am everywhere. All right. Dads. Uh, number four, you hurt her, I hurt you. Number five, be home 30 minutes early. Number six, if you lie to me, I will find out. All right. Number seven, she is my princess, not your conquest. That's good. And then number eight, whatever you do to her, I will do to you. So, uh, rules for dating daughters from dads. Now, one of my favorite quotes is from comedian actor Bill Engvall, who said this, and he, I, I, remember him, I remember him in a, a skit thing, a comedy thing, he's saying this, I pulled the boy close to me and said, you see that girl? That's my only little girl. So if you think about hugging and kissing, remember these words, I ain't afraid to go back to prison. <laughs> Love that. And then one of my favorites, I didn't bring it with me, and I have it at home, I forgot to, but I have a shotgun shell, and you give that to your daughter's date, you, you toss that at him, he catches it, and say, if anything happens to my girl, the next one is going to be coming at you much faster. <laughs> so, anyway, well, I want to speak on intentional fatherhood this morning, and we'll be looking at some intentional fathers in the Bible I want to challenge the men and the dads of this church to lead a life of legacy for their families. The word intentional literally means done on purpose. Done on purpose, deliberate. An act with purpose, or to act with purpose. Done in a way that was planned. So I, I could have named the sermon this morning, On Purpose Papas, or Deliberate Dads, or Parents with a Plan, but I'll stick with Intentional fatherhood being as Father's Day. I believe that fatherhood is possibly the greatest level of influence that a man can have. Therefore, as dads, we need to do all that we can to be intentional, deliberate, and on purpose. We'll start looking at some fathers in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, and see the examples that they left for us to read about and hopefully to emulate uh, the good parts of life. Keep this in mind, there's not a perfect dad in this building this morning. There's not a perfect mom or a perfect person in this place today. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. I get that. Uh, the only perfect father is our Father in Heaven, all right? And we're to be, be perfect as He is perfect. That, that means mature or to be grown up in, and, uh, in, in that manner. But I want to begin by looking at the first father, that being Abraham. So we're going to sing Father Abraham. I need some, uh, need some people to volunteer to do the motions. How many remember that song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. They're going to do a right hand and Father Abraham. And, and we're not going to do that today. Just kidding you. But, but Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, we have God revealing to Abraham how he was going to redeem the world through the family. And we have Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make you, God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. The reason God blesses you and me is so that we'll be a blessing to others. We are blessed to be a blessing. That's what it says in Genesis 2, uh, 12, verse 2. And you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. 
and in you all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, God's going to bless his family and bless him as a father, so in turn, that family for multi-generational faithfulness can be a blessing to others in the generations that follow. So they're here, I mean, here in Genesis 12 is a covenant promise that God wants to bless us. He wants to bless our families so our family can be a blessing then to other families. And then six chapters later in Genesis chapter 18, God makes one, I think, one of the most powerful statements ever made over a father. And Genesis 18, 19 says this, For I know him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abram that which he has spoken of him. In other words, God is saying, the reason I picked Abraham, the reason I chose him, is that he will become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth are going to be blessed through him. It's because of his intentionality as a father. God says, man, I'm going I'm to rest all my promises. They're all contingent on this father who would command, who would dis- disciple, discipline his kids, his family, his household to keep the ways of God. God says, I know him. May God say of all of our dads today, I know him that he's going to keep the ways of God, that he's going to train, he's going to disciple his, his kids, his family. I know him. I can trust him. And as a result of Father Abraham's intentionality, God turned history around to the home of this one man. Fathers, think of the legacy you are leaving with your family, with your kids, with, we have a lot of grandpas here, with your grandchildren as well. See, God found one family, and out of this family line, the Messiah would come to bring redemption to the world. Now, that to me speaks very powerfully. I mean, the Apostle Paul says, if we are in Christ, we are Abraham's seed. Jesus said in John's Gospel, if you were, the, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Well, what were the works of Abraham? He commanded his family to keep the ways of the Lord. And if you read through Genesis, you'll find Abraham. Man, he's building altars. He's calling, he's constantly calling on the name of the Lord. That's what we need. We need men that will call on the name of God. Men that will say, hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to make sure that our family makes it to heaven. Men, we got to do it. We can't just sit back and hope by, that by bringing our children to church on a Sunday, you know, one Sunday a week, a day a week, I should say, is, is going to be enough. It's going to take more than that. It's going to take moms and dads, you know, moms and fathers, to, to teach their families the ways of God. Those that God can say, you know, I know him, that he will keep the ways of the Lord. He will command his family. The Living Bible says, I have picked him out to have godly descendants and a godly household. Martin Luther, in his book, The Estate of Marriage, wrote this in 1522. Most certainly, father and mother are apostles, bishops and priests to their children, for it is they who make them acquainted with the gospel. Amen. And so you are a priesthood of believers. Dads, never ever underestimate the impact that you will make for eternity on your family. Now, besides Abraham, who are some other biblical fathers we can, we can look at and emulate? Well, how about Job? Job rose early every morning, and the Bible says that he prayed for his kids in case they cursed God in their hearts he would then sacrifice a burnt offering in their behalf. In other words, words, Job built a family altar every day. This was his regular custom. He prayed for his kids. God, keep my children. Man, if there's ever a day where we need to be praying for our kids and our grandkids, it is today. God, keep our kids, keep our family, keep our grandkids. God, may may these kids, may these children be raised up to love, know, and serve Jesus Christ. 
Now, as a godly parent, Job watched their conduct. He watched their lifestyle, praying that they would be kept from evil and experience God's blessing and God's salvation. I mean, Job's heart was turned toward his children, all ten of them, seven sons and three daughters. He had moral integrity, the Bible said. He had a wholehearted commitment to God. He feared God. He shunned evil. His life was literally holiness unto God, being separated unto God, and, and he was deeply concerned for the spiritual welfare of his own children. Wow. Dads, I know you are too. And so you keep on praying, you keep on believing, you keep on coming before God in behalf of your family. I also think of, with intentional fatherhood, I think of Joseph, Joseph of Mary. Matthew chapter 1 says, Joseph was a righteous man. He was obedient. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. In Matthew chapter 2, he protected his family by obeying the angel again and by going to Egypt. I mean, just think how God trusted this man called Joseph and Mary with his own son to be reared in their home along with James and Jude, keeping in mind that they were his sons too. I mean, James and Jude were leaders in the church, and each gave us a book in the New Testament. Now, what kind of father was Joseph that God would trust him to raise up his boys to serve God's purposes in the world to reach lost souls? That, my friend, is intentional fatherhood. We have, we have uh, Joseph. I also think about Cornelius in the New Testament. Uh, Acts 10.2 says... He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. I mean, Cornelius and his household were used to open up the door of salvation to the Gentiles. Think about it. That's you and me. See, God uses families. God uses intentional fathers, faith-at-home fathers, to bring redemption to a lost and dying world. Friends, we need today sincere, committed parents who will influence their families for the cause of Christ. In other words, it's up to me, it's up to you to command our families so they will keep the way of the Lord. So we have Cornelius. How about Noah? You know, once again, no dad in the Bible is perfect except God the Father. But Noah was preparing an ark for what? To save his family. What are you preparing to save your family? As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes again. In other words, we better be preparing an ark for our family because this is not a game. This is not some plaything. This is for eternity. This is for keeps. And so dads, moms, grandpas, grandmas, adults here, kids here, teenagers here today, uh, your family is going to go to either heaven or hell. Think about that. And it's up to you as parents, grandparents, to take this seriously, to get a burden, to fast for your family, to pray for your family, to call on the name of the Lord for your family. Why? Because heaven won't be heaven if your children, if your family's not there. The Bible speaks of Noah, the eighth person in 2 Peter 2.5. Now, what does that mean? I mean, 2 Peter 2.5, and spared not the old world, uh, but saved Noah, the eighth person a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Well, Noah, the eighth person, means that he made sure the others were safely on the ark before he went on himself. Make sure you're preparing something for the salvation of your children, even as Noah built and prepared the ark. We have Philip in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 8, it records the story of Philip, the great evangelist, who was very influential for Christ. In Samaria, Acts 8, 8 records there was great joy in that city. I mean, miraculous signs, evil spirits being cast out, cripples and paralytics being healed. I mean, Philip touched a city for Christ, and then he touched a nation through the Ethiopian eunuch. 
He was so influential in a city, and he was influential in a nation, but I believe that his greatest thing he did was to influence his daughters for the cause of Christ. Acts 21, 8 and 9 says this, Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I've joked before about Pastor Jim Philip and, and Renisha having three unmarried daughters, raising them up, raising the Philip girls up to prophesy, to be evangelists or whatever God has for them. But it says they had four daughters here, so just saying one more daughter should be on the way. i just just putting that out there. But Philip's four daughters prophesied. They spoke the word of the Lord. I'm just joking, Pastor Jim and Renisha. The thing that Philip did... The greatest thing was, was not reach the city or a nation, but really reaching his, his own daughters for Christ. Think of it. His house was used to redeem the lost world. Would to God that our homes are used to reach the lost of the world, starting in our own neighborhood, you know, and branching out from there. Maybe you've heard the phrase, as goes the church, so goes the nation. Let me back that up a little bit. As goes the man, so goes the family. As goes the family, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the nation. So as goes the man, think about that, so goes the family, which explains something. 63% of the youth who commit suicide today come from fatherless homes. 63%. 20% of the children, one-fifth of the children in the United States of America don't even know who their father is. Eighty-five percent of children with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. Eighty-five percent of youth in prison come from fatherless homes. Seventy-one percent of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Friends, this, this tells us the only, the only thing worse than a home that does not have a father is a home that has a father who will not take a stand, who will not lead that family spiritually and say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we're serving God. Christ is going to be the center of our home. And so would to God that God would restore and that we as the body of Christ today would reclaim a biblical culture of family discipleship where parents and grandparents take the lead in the spiritual training of their children, of their teenagers at home, and the church then is able to give its best efforts to helping parents then to be successful in the discipling of their own kids. That's why... We must have intentional dads. Dads who have a spiritual backbone. Dads who have a prayer life. Dads who are leading and are serving in their local church so their kids will see them and know what it means to serve God. Dads who use the Bible to lead their families to heaven. Dads who lead the way with intention, on purpose. Men, fathers, we cannot be passive about this. We can't be laid back and nonchalant and think, well, I'm, I'm just going to see what happens to my kids. Uh, an hour and a half on Sunday morning won't cut it. Our kids today are fighting way too many demons. And hell has upped the ante, if you will, to destroy the family and the minds of children. And I, category B, transgenderism today, destroying kids. Disney right now continues to aggressively push the LGBTQ ideology in its entertainment for children by inviting children to drag queen shows to promote the transgender movement. Disney. Disney. Dads, teach your kids that they are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And God doesn't make mistakes. So if you were born as a boy, that's what God wanted you to be. If you were born as a girl, that's what God wants you to be. I know this is Pride Month. Uh, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Dads, teach your kids 
in the month of June that the rainbow belongs to God, not the LGBTQ movement. It belongs to God. It's his promise. Talk to them about the rainbow in heaven in Revelation chapter 4 that surrounds the throne of God. I mean, reclaim it for God. Don't be embarrassed to see a rainbow. It belongs to God. It's God's promise. It's God's covenant. I read this past week on a side note that New York City is now giving out free crack pipes in vending machines. The pipes are being distributed from now, uh, no charge to addicts, vending machines plunked down in already drug-plagued city neighborhoods. And the machines have been placed near previously established government-sponsored drug shooting galleries, oops, make that safe injection sites, which are the last big anti-overdose idea. Well, to me, giving out free crack pipes is government-assisted suicide. God help us. God help us. And the church must raise up the standard of God's word, thus saith the Lord. This is the way of God. This is the way of the word of God. See, if we don't disciple our kids and teach them the ways of God, if we don't teach them to love Jesus Christ, then the world will teach them not to. We must do all we can as parents to make sure that our kids are raised up with the fear of the admonition of God. I mean, train up a child in the way he should go, not guaranteed the way they will go because they still have free will. And I was trained up in church, brought up in church. You know my story. And yet I was going to hell going to church. But because of what was placed in my heart, it, God's word doesn't return to him void. And so if you have wayward kids right now, wayward grandkids right now that aren't serving God, church, dads, moms, grandpas, grandmas, keep on praying for them. Keep on lifting up their names before God in heaven. I mean, we might as a church have your kids for a couple hours a week, but we can't do for you what God has called you to do in your parenting. And so, dads, it's up to you to indoctrinate your kids with the Word of God, with prayer, with Christian faith. A number of years ago, and I've shared this before, but when I began to share about the faith at home vision, I shared some statistics from the Search Institute of Effective Christian Education Survey. This is interesting. Percentage of churched youth who view their mom as very religious, 48%. Percentage of church youth who view their dad as very religious, 23%. That means that 77% of our church youth kids don't see their dad as being very religious. And just a side note again, I'm not about religion, I'm about relationship with Jesus. You know, religion, I always say religion will damn you, you know, but a relationship with Christ will save you. Uh, but, but we need to make sure we're doing what we can. A percentage of church youth who have talked with mom about faith, 28%. How about percentage of church youth who have talked to dad about faith, only 13%. Percentage of church youth who have experienced either family devotions, prayer, or Bible reading in the home, 27%. That means that only three out of four kids are experiencing none of those things. Percentage of church youth who have experienced a, a family service project is only 29%, which means, again, that all, uh, two out of three kids never serve alongside mom or dad. Now, remember, these are the results of churched, churched youth. Imagine what the results would be for unchurched youth. Now, what do these statistics reveal regarding how much we are talking the talk and walking the walk as Christians in our homes? And really, why isn't faith at home happening in the home? Why, why, isn't, why isn't God talked about? Why isn't the Bible read? Why aren't people praying? Whatever. Well, there's a couple of reasons that come to mind. Number one is that parents have relinquished this responsibility to the church. But Why? I think one reason why parents don't take the lead when it comes to discipling their own children is because they didn't experience what it was like for them as kids in their home when they were growing up. In other words, they simply don't know what to do, where to begin, how does this look in my house. 
Another reason why parents handed over this responsibility to the church is because in the same manner that we have asked people to teach our, ch our children to play piano or to play soccer or basketball or, or football or baseball or whatever, we, we expect the church to teach our children faith. It's called outsourcing. Hey, you're the professionals. Here, take care of my kids. The second reason why faith, walk, and talk isn't happening in the home, number two is the church has enabled this abdication through programs that are more church-focused than home-focused. I think the more prevalent reason why parents have passed this responsibility of teaching their children faith is because a church has enabled them to do so. Guilty as charged. Let me explain. In the 1960s and 1970s, the church saw an explosion in Christian education through Sunday school and youth group ministries and children's ministries. Churches added in those years educational wings and youth rooms and, and ch dedicated children's rooms to the facilities. At the same time, society entered into the technology age and families began to get busier as families got busier work schedules increased and more moms started working when the church began offering ministries for children and teenagers parents said hey this is a great idea we're going to welcome the opportunity to bring our kids to church it's going to give us a much needed break all right and quite honestly for many parents this provided that needed break from their children now while everyone's intentions were good many parents started to see these programs as an opportunity to pass on the faith nurturing responsibilities to the church once again hey you're the experts you take care of them and then what happened is parents would drop their kids off and say here you go teach my children faith i'll be back in an hour and a half to pick them up of course, the church never intended for these programs to take the place of parents in the faith development of children. However, intentional or not, over the last 40, 50, 60 years, there's been a movement away from the home being the primary place where faith is nurtured. I love this quote from uh, George Barna in his book, Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. I got the book. He says, when a church, intentionally or not, assumes a family's responsibilities in the arena of spiritually nurturing children, it fosters an unhealthy dependence upon the church to relieve the family of its biblical responsibility. He continues, a majority of churches are actually guilty of perpetuating an unhealthy and unbiblical process wherein the church usurps the role of the family and creates an unfortunate, sometimes exclusive dependency upon the church for the child's spiritual nourishment. Now, while the approach of dropping off the kids at church might keep them busy at church for a few years, it doesn't lead to faith that lasts into their adult, their adult years. In other words, their faith doesn't stick. And, and they end up not serving God and, and being wayward in, in that approach. Now, Marjorie Thompson, uh, in the book Family, the Forming Center, said this, For all their specialized training, church professionals realize that if a child is not receiving some basic Christian nurture in the home, even the best teachers and curriculum will have minimal impact. Once a week exposure simply cannot compete with the daily experience where personal formation is concerned. Wow. Christian Smith, in his book Soul Searching, he wrote this. Most teenagers and their parents may not realize it, but a lot of research in the sociology of religion suggests that the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents. I add a hearty amen to that. You've heard me say for years now, if your faith doesn't work at home, your faith doesn't work. Because boys and girls and teenagers need to see faith modeled in the lives of their parents. And if they see that and mom and dad are intentional in discipling their own kids biblically, then it's more likely to stick. Their faith is. I like this quote from Dr. Roland Martinson of Luther Seminary. What we ought to do is let the kids drop off their parents at church, train the parents, and send them back into the mission field, their home, to grow Christians. Yes, amen. All right. 
You see, nowhere in the Bible does it say that the way to pass faith on to our children is to drop them off at church and expect the church to teach them the faith. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the faith development of kids and youth is the job of the church. No, it's the job of parents and primarily fathers that will take the lead in discipling their own children. I think, amen, (laughs) what is most important is not what happens here, but really what happens in the context of your home. Is your faith being lived out at home, moms and dads? See, God's word is very clear in Deuteronomy. It is the parents and grandparents who are the ones that are primarily responsible for the passing on faith to their children and children's children, and it really begins with fathers intentional fatherhood. Let me highlight an article from Dr. Rob Reno, one of my champions in the Faith at Home movement as well. And in his article, The Essential Role of the Family in World Evangelization, Dr. Rob Reno says, since 1900, the percentage of Bible-believing Christians referring to North America has been in decline. If you've done any studies in the last 10, 20 years, you'll see that number dropping and dropping. He he writes, evangelism and discipleship are in dire crisis, and it's a generational crisis. We are are losing more of our own children to the world than we are winning adult converts to faith in Christ. As a result, the percentage of Bible-believing Christians in the United States is in steady decline. How could this be happening? He says, this is the age of mega churches, mega programming, mega budgets, mega conferences, and mega leadership training. We have Christian books, we have DVDs, we have curriculum for every age group on every subject. Our outreach events, service days, retreats, and short-term mission trips are never-ending. We are doing more than ever before, but we are not making disciples more than before. He says, I am convinced He says that we are not making disciples. When it comes to youth and children's ministry, and Rob Reno used to be a a youth leader. When it comes to youth and children's ministry, we must acknowledge that the new experiment has failed. The new experiment being age-segregated, church-building-based evangelism and discipleship of children. Parents drop them off. We We split them up by age in different rooms in the building, and we disciple them. In terms of Christian history, this is a brand new idea. Slowly but surely, we have abandoned the biblical model of family discipleship and delegated the spiritual training of our children to professionals, quote-unquote, at church. Friends, I know what Dr. Rob Reno was talking about because I used to be a children's pastor. And one of the unintended consequences of my ministry approach when I first got started, which systematically separated children from their parents, was that parents then were free to remain spiritually passive at home. After all, they were making sure that their son, their daughter, was involved in a great children's ministry, a great youth ministry at the church. You see, our new model is a dramatic departure from the approach of the early church and even of that of the Reformation. Did you know that it was a common practice for church leaders in the 1600s to regularly visit the home of each family in the church to assess whether or not the parents were discipling their children to the regular practice of family worship. In other words, family worship defined is the time where family gathers for prayer, for the reading of scripture, and for spiritual encouragement and, and conversation. It was intentional. Matter of fact, in 1647, believers in Scotland published the Directory for Family Worship in which they wrote, and I quote, the, this is, or the assembly requires and appoints ministers to make diligent search and inquiry whether there be among them a family or families which neglect the duty of family worship. 
If such a family is found, the head of the family is to be admonished privately to amend his fault. And in case of his continuing therein, he is to be gravely and sadly reproved by the session, after which reproof, if he is found still to, to neglect family worship, let him be for his obstinacy and in such an offense suspended and debarred from the Lord's Supper until he amend. Do you see the seriousness in the mid-1600s of family worship, of family discipleship? In other words, there's ministers that went to your home, and if you're not discipling your kids, they would make note of it, they would talk to you about it, and if you didn't uh, amend your ways, you're not participating in communion in the church. Basically, we are disciplining you, all right? And that was the way it was. Now, what that is saying is that, is that family worship was a major issue of church discipline early on in the Reformation. Now, why did these churches take it so seriously? Why did they invest so much time going from home to home to encourage and ensure that family worship was literally taking place? Well, family worship was a top priority because they were simply passionate about the Great Commission. And they saw that to fulfill the Great Commission, the best way we can do that is to make sure that this is happening in our homes. They knew that God had spoken clearly in the Bible, that parents were to take the lead in the spiritual training of their children. For them, a church could not be serious about the Great Commission if it was not serious about family worship, where prayer, Bible reading, spiritual discussions, encouragement was taking place. Here's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was deeply concerned about the changes which were occurring in the Christian culture during the late 19th century. In his article, The Kind of Revival We Need, he wrote this. We deeply want a revival of family religion. The Christian family was the bulwark of godliness in the days of the Puritans, but in these evil times, hundreds of families of so-called Christians have no family worship, no restraint upon growing sons, and no wholesome instruction or discipline. How can we hope to see the kingdom of our Lord advance when His own disciples do not teach His gospel to their own children. And then Charles Spurgeon ends that article, that part of that. He says, Oh, Christian men and women, be thorough in what you do and know and teach. Let your families be trained in the fear of God and be yourselves holiness unto the Lord so you shall stand like a rock amid the surging waves of error and ungodliness which rage around us. That was years and years and years ago. How much worse has the culture got today? The anti-God movement that we see today and everything that hell's released on planet Earth. You see, Charles Spurgeon's message, I believe, is desperately needed today as well. He understood that to see the kingdom of our Lord advance, ministry needs to begin, not here, not in these four walls, but within the confines of your home, your four walls. In Matthew 22, 35 and 36, Jesus is confronted with a powerful question. A religious leader asked Jesus, what is the most important command in the law? And so Jesus answered by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, according to Jesus, nothing is more important than knowing God and loving him. But what are we supposed to do with this command? I mean, where do we start? How do you, how do you obey the great commandment today? Well, in the next few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gives a specific mission for those who would seek to love him. And it says this in Deuteronomy 6, 6, and the first part of verse 7. God says, these commandments that I give you today, these commandments are to be upon your hearts, speaking to parents. And then he says this, impress them on your children. Friends, I can't, I can't impress what I don't possess. I can't teach if I had kids, our kids, if I didn't know and keep the commandments of God myself. So here we find the first task for the faith community in response to the great commandment. 
those who love God are called first and foremost to do all in their power to lead their children to love him even more. And so really at the heart of the great commandment is family discipleship and parents being the primary spiritual trainers of their children. In other words, intentional fathers, intentional mothers. How does that happen? How can I, as a sinful person, pass faith and love for God onto my children? Great question. Glad you asked it. There are no magic formulas, but God gives us a simple starting point in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the following verses. It says in 7b and and verse 8, talk about them, them being the commandments, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. So who is the you here? Four times, when you, when you, when you, when you. Who is the you? The church? No. The youth pastor? No. The children's pastor? The Sunday school teacher? No. The kids club teacher? No. You means you. You means me. All right, if I had kids. It means parents. It means fathers. So where can parents start? By talking to their kids, about being intentional, about creating conversations with their children in the home. And this is what Christians have done throughout history, and it's called family worship, a time where your family gathers for prayer, for scripture reading, for spiritual encouragement, for spiritual discussions. You see, God gives his call to fathers in Ephesians 6 verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. God says that fathers are not to arouse deep anger in the hearts of their kids, and so he gives them a remedy that won't happen. He says, bring your kids up in the training and the instruction of God. Training here refers to spiritual exercise, the spiritual practices of the Christian faith. In other words, fathers are to pray with, serve with, and worship with their kids. Let me just pause for a minute and chase a squirrel like I like doing. All right. In part, this is why I like Family Communion Sunday at Baseline Christian Fellowship Church, where kids will worship with mom and dad. Been doing this for 20-some years, and I'm guessing as long as I'm pastoring here, unless God says, change it, but we're going to keep on doing it. Why? Because kids need to see mom and dad worshiping God. Kids need to see mom and dads praying at the altar. Kids need to see mom and dad serving in their local church. Kids need that lead from mom and dad. They need to see it. And that's why we have kids sitting with moms and dads on Family Communion Sunday one time a month so kids, so families can be together to experience that training. Then we have in the training and the instruction. Instruction refers to the words that dads actually speak to their kids. The words that fathers and husbands speak in the home about spiritual things has tremendous power. Now, if we want to maximize a man's impact on the world, we must first maximize his impact at home. There's a lot of talk today about church and the importance of small groups. And you've heard the buzz lines, we need to do life together in small groups. Discipleship happens in the context of relationships. Small groups need to return to authentic community. I've used all those in creating life groups, small groups, whatever. See, God loves discipleship small groups too. He just has another name for them. God calls them families. He calls them families. And he wants every person to be born into the ultimate discipleship small group, a Christian family. And God created the family to shape our hearts and the hearts of our children with a deep and abiding love for Christ and his word. I read on, I'm a part of Dennis Prager, Dennis, or Prager U is called. And, and this morning is, this morning's uh, little quote was, uh, a lot of the world's problems today, I'm paraphrasing, a lot of the world's problems today could be taken care of by parents parenting their children. In this whole transgender confusion, garbage from the pit of hell, same thing.
listen to that message I, I, I talked about. Uh, let me close with a couple scriptures and a couple more comments. Psalm 78 and 1 through 7, we are given a picture of the powerful impact intentional fathers have in their families in advancing the kingdom of God. Psalm 78, verse 1, O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known. What our fathers, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation, I love this, we'll tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power, and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation, are you, are you making that connection? So the next generation, it says, would know them. Even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. In other words, God says, dads, fathers, it's up to you to instruct your kids so there can be multi-generational faithfulness in your family. So the next generation will know the Lord and serve God. So the next generation will do the same thing. Friends, it's up to us. It's up to fathers. It's up to the church to say, hey, this is the way. This is the way walking in it. Fatherhood. That they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Psalm 78. In other words, be a father that tells his children the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. So their children, and would tell the children not yet even born. What a powerful vision for family, for fatherhood, for parents. At the heart of the advance of the gospel is the call to parents to impress the hearts of their children with a love for God and a love for God's word. Psalm 112, 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man. Every father should say, that's me. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants, his children, will be mighty on earth. I love that. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. His children, his descendants will be mighty on earth. I know that we look at the world today, what's going on in the world today, and, and we also sense the nearness of the coming of the Lord, and that's all good, and that's all wonderful. But parents... You don't have to fear what's happening in the world today as long as you fear God and are teaching your kids the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, but teaching your, your kids, your grandkids to fear God and to love Him and to love His Word. Do all you can to make sure that's happening. Bottom line is this, and I close with two quotes. Dads, your children will become what you are. So be what you want them to be. And the final quote is, I've used before, I actually showed his video here on Father's Day a number of years ago. I was at this conference when David Platt was speaking. This is 2011. And he said this, Our goal in parenting is not ultimately for our kids to get a great education or to be great athletes or to find a great husband or get a great career. Our goal is for them to love a great God. Amen. And that begins by me loving a great God. It begins by you, dads, moms, grandpas, grandmas, by loving a great God. All the other things take care of themselves. Let's make sure we're doing all we can and all that God's given to us to disciple the hearts of our kids. Amen? Dads, we love you. We thank God for you. We bless you today. Matter of fact, I want all the fathers to come stand to your feet. Come up to the front. I want to speak blessing over all the dads this morning. If you're physically able to be up here, and then also to remind you on the way out, Pastor Jill's out in the foyer. We have a gift for each dad today. But I want to speak blessing over our, over our fathers today, over our dads today. We love our dads. 
just spread out across the front here. The rest of you, if you want to stand to your feet and extend your hands to our dads this morning, maybe your dad's with Jesus today, and Father's Day is not the easiest day for you. But let's believe God for God to impart his blessing upon our fathers that are here, our fathers that still can make a difference. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we speak blessing over every dad present and ask you to bless these fathers with supernatural strength, spiritual strength, to be godly fathers, fathers of intentionality, fathers of spiritual influence in their families. Bless our dads today to lead in their God-given responsibility to be spiritual priests in their homes. Father, I pray for dads that would love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Dads who intentionally talk to their children about spiritual things, be it at home, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, or throughout the day's activities, when they lie down, when they get up, when they're on the road. God, may you say of each father here today, as you said of Abraham, for I know him. I know this, Father. He will keep the way of God. He will command his kids and they shall keep the way of the Lord. Father, bless these men with homes of purity, with homes of holiness, so the Spirit of God may dwell with them with, a, with an anointing from the Holy Spirit. God, we bless our dads to walk in truth and righteousness with the mind of Christ under the powerful anointing of the Holy Ghost so that what they proclaim in the heavenlies will come to pass, so that the gates of hell will not prevail against them or their families for generations, for generations to follow. Those who have yet to be born, Father, God, I pray that they'll experience spiritual breakthrough in their families like they've never known before. And God, I ask today that you would fulfill your word by turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children back to their dads. Father, may you bless and keep them. May you make your face shine upon them, God. And may you you lift up your countenance upon each and every father here today to be intentional about their fatherhood. We bless our dads. We love our dads. And we thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, fathers. God bless you, dads. Have a great Father's Day. As I say in Mother's Day, I'm reversing it today. Fathers, you shouldn't be cooking today. You shouldn't be cleaning the dishes today. Take it easy. If they're taking you out for lunch, be a blessing. You can pay the bill. You probably will anyway. But God bless you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful Father's Day. If you haven't signed up yet for hospitality ministry, that is coming up next week after church. There's going to be a training session for that. But have, have a blessed week in the Lord. All the dads, as you leave today, you'll get a choice of a large, giant, whatever, candy bar. There are like three different choices. I like them all, but have, have, have at it on your way out today. Happy Father's Day. God bless you. Amen.